as we're going through the book of Revelation. And now we're into chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. Today we're looking at the letter to the second church, the church in Smyrna. Let's turn to God's Word. If you have your Bibles, open them to Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Listen carefully, this is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for making us your people. This morning as we look at the church in Smyrna, will you please help us? We know uh, we're not much like this church. We don't know how we would handle this kind of persecution. We lack faith and we love comfort. We find these words hard. So Lord, help us to meet Jesus in his glory as we see him in these words. Do this for each of us this morning and Jesus' good name and for his great glory. Amen. We're going to Smyrna today. Smyrna is one of the few churches in these letters that receive no words of rebuke from Jesus. Smyrna is one of the first persecuted churches. Persecution of the church at Smyrna reached its peak half a century after this letter with the execution of its aged bishop, Polycarp, in 155 A.D. The people of the city had had enough of the Christians because they wouldn't worship the emperor. And so we read from the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp, the whole multitude, marveling at the nobility of mind displayed by the devout and godly race of Christians, cried out, Away with the atheists! Let Polycarp be sought out. Then he was hauled before the courts of Smyrna, held in a large stadium, to renounce Jesus Christ. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp flatly refused. He never wavered, and he said these words, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when the proconsul yet again pressed him, he answered, Since you are so vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who or what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian." The proconsul then said to them, I have wild beasts at hand, 
and to these I will cast you, except you repent. And Polycarp answered, Call them. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. And again the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. And Polycarp answered him, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. And when the funeral pyre was ready, Polycarp laid aside all his garments and placing his hands behind him, being bound like a ram for sacrifice, prepared to be an acceptable burnt offering unto God, looked up to heaven and said, Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we've received the knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers, and of every creature, and the whole race of the righteous who live before thee, I give thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs in the cup of Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Spirit among whom I may be accepted this day as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, according as you, the ever-truthful God, has foreordained and now has fulfilled. Wherefore also I praise you for all things. I bless thee, I glorify thee, along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, with whom to thee and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. And then Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, was burned alive. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was a young man when he followed John and he learned from John. And he probably heard the words of the Apostle in the book of Revelation when it was read for the first time in the church in Smyrna. He heard them and then lived his life and died in accordance with those words. Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's the promise that Jesus Christ gave to the church in Smyrna. And his voice addresses us today in his letters to the seven churches. For each letter is what the Spirit says to all the churches. So let's start by looking at Smyrna. Because what we can learn about this city will shed light on what Jesus writes. And so we start with the city. If you could put up the map. Hey, there it is. There it is. There's Smyrna. There's John. Last week we looked at Ephesus. This week we look at Smyrna. You can see it's a port city. It's a deep channel port, which is very valuable if you know geography. Makes it a very prosperous place. You can see all those churches. They sort of lie in a uh, semicircle going from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
and they lie around there. That's the order in which the letters were written. The first century city of Smyrna was an amazing city. It had overcome a difficult history. It was a beautiful city located on the coast about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It had a protected harbor on the western shore of Turkey, which permitted a flourishing trading business. And so it was one of the most prosperous cities of Asia. And there's a hill along the back of the city. And around the crest of the hill are a number of pagan temples forming a rough circle. And because it looked like a crown, Smyrna was called the crown of Asia. That'll explain a reference we find later on in this letter. Smyrna was destroyed in 580 B.C. by the king of Lydia, but it was rebuilt in 290 B.C. as a model city. It was the first planned city in Asia, and it was laid out in a very rational and logical manner. We, we talk about planned cities today, Reston, Columbia, Maryland, where they planned it all out before they built anything. Well, this was the first one. It had a famous stadium, a huge library, and the largest public theater in Asia. And the city's ability to emerge from this 300-year period of desolation and abandonment to become one of the preeminent cities of the empire gave Smyrna the title, was actually given to it by one of the Roman empires, the city that died yet lives. And we'll see that reference again in this letter. And so from the time it was rebuilt... It developed and maintained a special relationship with Rome. It was one of the major centers of emperor worship. It was the first city in the empire to erect a temple to the goddess Roma and the spirit of Rome in 195 B.C. And then in 25 A.D., it was chosen by Rome to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. And then they had one more and then one more. It had four temples to various emperors. And it became the seat of the imperial cult in Asia. It would naturally come into conflict with the Christian community. And so the Christians of Smyrna were confronted with this annual requirement to appear before the city and to make the pledge that Caesar is Lord. It was a test the Romans applied to all of their citizens. And to refuse to sprinkle incense on the fire before uh, Caesar's image and to declare him the Lord was interpreted as a lack of patriotism, disruptive of the unity of the empire. The Christian community experienced financial, emotional, and spiritual suffering because of their loyalty to Jesus as Lord. Men, a great deal of pressure and persecution came upon their church because of their unwillingness to say, Caesar is Lord. The city of Smyrna was also well-known for it was uh, surrounded by groves of trees. Its bark was used to produce the aromatic gum resin known as myrrh, from which it drew its name. And of course, myrrh, if you remember, is one of the precious spices brought to Jesus uh, by the wise men and is a basic element used for burial. Myrrh is a symbol for suffering and death. So it's not surprising that in both poetry and myth, Smyrna became associated with great suffering. But like myrrh, it also became associated with the reputation and the expectation of overcoming death through resurrection. And of the seven cities addressed in this book, Smyrna is the only one that continues as a thriving city today. It's now known 
as Izmir, Turkey. And it still exists. You can turn off the map now. Thanks. That sets the stage for this letter, which was not written to the city, but was written for the church. Should be the first blank there in your outline, the church, looking at the beginning of verse 8 and then verse 9. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The church of Smyrna appears to have held a special place in John's heart. For John, there's two cities at work here. On the one hand, the city itself had endured great suffering, but in giving itself over to the empire of Rome, it has received great reward. On the other hand, the second city in Smyrna, the church, is now facing a period of persecution and possible death. The church in this city is a suffering church. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. And that very strong word, tribulation, is used to describe the experiences of these Christians. That word is thalipsis in Greek. I had to look it up. Thalipsis. I also had to look up how to say it. But it denotes crushing pressure. Thalipsis is used to give us the picture of a person being tortured to death by being slowly crushed by a great boulder that was placed on top of them. They would die of suffocation because they wouldn't be able to expand their lungs and eventually they would be crushed and die. And so the disciples in Smyrna are living out their faith under Thalipsis, under crushing pressure. Now the church in Smyrna faced threats from two directions. The first, most obvious one, came from the Roman Empire. Rome continually faced the problem of how to unify a vast empire that included so many different languages and cultures and people groups. So they found the unifying theme in emperor worship. And they reacted harshly to those who refused to participate. But a second and even more challenging threat came from the Jewish community living in the city. See, the Jews had received an exception to the policy of emperor worship. And so this made Smyrna one of the major population centers for the Jews in the diaspora. That's the dispersion of the Jewish people after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Certainly many of the believers in Smyrna were Gentiles uh, who had converted to Christianity, but also many came from Jewish backgrounds. And in the eyes of both the Jews and the Romans, these believers were no longer Jewish. So the exception no longer applied to them. They had no special rights in the empire. And therefore, they're seen as a threat to the peaceable way of life. And if things got really bad, the Jewish community felt they could be a threat uh, to all the privileges that the Jewish citizens had. So they're being attacked from two different directions. They're being attacked by the Romans. They're being attacked by the Jewish community. There's also an acknowledgement in this letter of their poverty. And as best I can tell, this is a literal, physical, material poverty. They're poor. We don't know exactly what made them poor. It was a wealthy city, but this is a poor church. It may have been this poverty was caused by the persecution that they're experiencing. 
that their homes had been pillaged, their possessions taken away, very common in the early church in times of persecution. And perhaps they had to resort to menial work and they had to eat cheap food in order to get by. Yet our Lord says that their fellowship within this congregation with their families was rich. Our Lord says that true riches come from within, where the heart is filled with the grace and the love of God. They had one another in the body of Christ. They had the living God as their heavenly Father. They had the Holy Spirit of God within them, bringing joy and peace to their hearts. They had an impossibly high purpose for living. They had the righteousness of Christ to, in which uh, they would stand before God at the last judgment. They had the promise of everlasting life in a world of measureless joy. They had the promise of God's presence with them at every moment while they lived in this world. And they had the knowledge that if they had to suffer, then they had to suffer for the highest and purest and most beautiful things. And they were suffering in a way that they would be glad to have suffered when it's all said and done. And apparently, that's the experience of the church in Smyrna. They were poor, yet they were rich. We're going to come to another church later on that was rich. And Jesus tells them that they're poor. Now these Christians lived in want and uncertainty and apparently some level of fear. And they lived in that for one reason and one reason only. Because they were followers of the Christ. Look at the second part of verse 8. Followers of the Christ. He says he identifies himself, the words of the first and the last. This is the third time we've heard that phrase in this book. The words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. Our Lord addresses the church in Smyrna using one of his titles from chapter 1, just as he had with the church in Ephesus. And the title here is the first and the last. And it comes from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 44 Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And that verse describes the sovereign and mighty God of Israel. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, informs the church that he has the same title as his Father. All of creation, all of life, past, present, and future, is in the mind, heart, and hands of our Lord. He is the wall of security. For believers, he is the only living God, the King of Israel, their Redeemer, and their life. This letter is also from him who died and came to life. It's not the city that died and came to life, but it's a description of Jesus. And now, this has to be an encouraging word to these people who are being threatened with death on a daily basis. Jesus is relating to their suffering out of his own experience. He's saying, you're worried about dying and you're worried about coming to life. Well, I'm the one who died. I'm the one who came to life. In the history of all humanity, he's the only person who came to this earth from heaven. And he came with the express purpose of dying for the sin of a created people who rebelled against the creator. And Jesus' death covers the sin of fallen man and all who place their faith in him as, uh, as uh, their savior and as the son of God will find their way back into the living and loving arms of God the Father. 
This reconciliation is possible because the Father raised the Son from the tomb and now declares him to be King of kings, Lord of lords, and the head of his church. This title also spoke of the hope of resurrection to a church that is suffering and dying for his name's sake. And again, Jesus gives no word of rebuke to this congregation because obviously they had drawn near to him. And he tells them he knows all this, even when he gives them a hard command. Look at verse 10. Because the worst is yet to come. These people are suffering, they're dying, they're being persecuted, and now he tells them, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. This, by the way, is the first mention of the devil in the book of Revelation. The Lord acknowledges that he who is the first and the last is going to allow this to happen. The devil will put some of them in prison. And he says this persecution is to test you. It's to show you how much you've grown. It's to strip off the superficial support you've been leaning on and to show you how much that you've learned to rely upon the strength and the grace of God. If you remember in John's gospel, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And now in this letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus tells the struggling congregation that they're going to suffer great persecution even to the point of death. The one who's responsible for this persecution is Jesus' ancient foe, the devil. And in Revelation 2, we see the historical outworking of what Jesus was warning them about in John 15. The inevitability of the persecution of God's people at the hands of Satan. However, because Jesus is the ultimate disposer of history... He's able to reveal that their coming tribulation will be brief. And it serves as a, a further uh, motivation for them to remain faithful during their time of testing, knowing that that would soon be over. And therefore, on the basis of who Christ is and their relationship to him, they're commanded not to be frightened, but to be faithful. Now, you have to understand, prison is not the primary affliction threatening these Christians. Since typically in the Roman world, imprisonment is merely a prelude to trial and execution. The Romans weren't big on maintaining prisons outside of Rome itself. Normally, once arrested, you were kept there for 10 days before being tried for treason. And then you received usually one of four possible sentences. You were fined, whipped, exiled, or executed. There were no long-term prison sentences. They didn't build that big prison. It was real quick, 10 days, fined, whipped, exiled, executed. Next, that's how they did it. And the end of verse 10 where it says, be faithful unto death, 
makes it clear that the trial that is in mind here is that one of execution, capital punishment. But that, he says, they'll have 10 days of tribulation is actually an allusion to Daniel 1. Remember we did Daniel last spring, those of you that were here. We did Daniel before Revelation for a reason. Because Revelation is constantly referring back to Daniel. And in Daniel 1, we see the testing of the Hebrew children. And it says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. The testing of Daniel and his three friends for 10 days is repeated twice. During this period, they went without eating the king's food. And the purpose of the test was to determine whether they could be as healthy as all the other youths who did eat the king's food. See, they're tempted to compromise with a pagan religion by being pressured to eat from the king's table. And they refused to do so because this food had been dedicated to idols. Furthermore, to eat at the table with the king is a symbolic act in the ancient Near East of giving loyalty to the king above all else. And the Hebrew youth wouldn't do this, particularly since the king considered himself divine. And just as centuries earlier, Daniel and his friends were tested for 10 days and proved faithful, so too would these Christians. Like the fate of the Hebrew children who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, the believers of Smyrna faced the persistent threat of political persecution from an empire that held them in suspicion. But Jesus Christ is Lord of his church, and even when persecuted unto death, he leaves them with two promises. The end of verse 10 and verse 11. There's two promises. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The present-day church of Smyrna, and the church is still there. As far as we can tell, it's been there continuously. It's the only one of these seven churches that is still alive, that is still there. And just three years ago, in April of 2006, five men entered a Christian publishing company in the southeastern province of Malatya in Turkey, and they killed three believers there. 300 miles from Antioch, where believers were first called Christians. One of them was a man called Nakadi, and he was buried in his hometown of Izmir, Smyrna. And at his funeral, his wife said these words, Wives, could you say this? She stood up and said, His death was full of meaning because he died for Christ, and he lived for Christ. Nakati was a gift from God. I feel honored that he was in my life. I feel crowned with honor. I want to be worthy of that honor. You know what his pastor said at the funeral? He asked the world, don't pray against persecution. Pray for perseverance. 
In Revelation chapter 12, we read about the martyrs, those who have died for their faith in Christ. And they have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And once these faithful arrive in eternity, they will meet their glorified Lord Jesus, and he will give them a crown of life, the symbol of eternal life. This crown is not the diadem, the crown of the king, but rather this crown is the Stephanos, the crown of life, the crown given to the victor of the games, which we get the name Stephen from, the first martyr of the church. And since that day, Stephen has been one of the most popular names in Christendom all over the world. In every language, in every culture, you can find a Stephen. This is the same word the Apostle Paul used in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may attain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in these things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, some versions say crown. The word is Stephanos, the same word used here in Revelation. But we, an imperishable, we receive an imperishable crown, an imperishable wreath, an imperishable Stephanos. James chapter uh, 1, verse 12, speaks of the same crown. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We seem to think that standing the test means that we survive. But that's not always the case in Christendom. Sometimes you don't survive. And standing the test means you don't survive. And the trial for these Christians... It could have been torture, maybe the rack, perhaps out to the stake to be burned like Polycarp or fed to the lions. And if you were in this church in Smyrna, would you overcome? Remember who the overcomers are. In one sense, John tells us, they are those who are born of God and overcome the world. And it's our faith that gives us the victory. Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is a church where the believers had to prove their faith by their devotion to Christ to the point of death. And if that was you, would you take the name of Christ? The Lord said that if they did, they will not be hurt by the second death. Do you know what the Lord is saying? You as a believer overcomer might have to face death and pass through death, and it might be a gruesome death at that, but not the second death. Is that the way we live? The second death, if you don't know, is what Revelation chapter 20 describes as the lake of fire. It's separation from God for all eternity. Listen carefully. Those who are born once and only once will die twice. But those who are born twice will only die once. Born once, die twice. Born twice, being born and born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you only die once. There's two births, physical and spiritual, and two deaths, physical and spiritual. 
All of us have to die once. But some will die twice because they've never believed the gospel. And if that's you, my friend, make sure that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Because the sinless Savior died, can you say, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Can you say that? Are you believing? I want to finish with another story from the persecuted church. A word for us from the persecuted church coming from China. And I was struck when I read this. It's actually a conversation, true story, conversation overheard between an American pastor and a Chinese pastor. It was overheard by a British pastor at a conference, and he recorded it, wrote it down. This is how it went. I'm just going to read it as it is. The American pastor asked the Chinese pastor, what book in the Bible is most precious to you? And the Chinese pastor said, well, probably the book of Revelation because, and the American pastor interrupted him, said, a unique American phenomenon. Because your suffering makes you long for the end of the world and you're strengthened by the vision of how it will end with Christ's victory, yes? The Chinese pastor said, well, that too, but we don't take Revelation just to be a description of the way the world will end. We need to see it as a description of the way the world is right now. The American pastor said, I don't understand. Surely Revelation is a book that tells us how the world will end. And the Chinese pastor agreed and said, yes, it is, but I'm telling you it is also a description of the way the world is right now. Suffering has made this clear to us in China. Clearly, prosperity has hidden this from you in America. And he went on. You see, we had a Caesar here in China called Mao Zedong. And he, like the Caesar of the early church, demanded what was only God's, that he should be worshipped as a god. And as in Revelation, he used a beast to coerce us, communism, and a false prophet to beguile us, false bishops. And when we resisted this idolatry with the testimony of the Lamb, we were slaughtered and jailed. In this way, we saw that revelation is a description of spiritual warfare that always goes on in any society, including yours. The American pastor said, but it's not going on in America today. You say we have that hidden from us. What do you mean? And the Chinese leader said, well, this conflict is obvious to us in China. You could not miss that Mao Zedong was setting himself up as an idol and demanding worship. So the veil was removed from our eyes and we saw the world as it really is, a place where idols are demanding our worship. But this is not obvious to you in America because it is more subtle. And the pastor from America said, well, you know, maybe it's not happening at all. We're a Christian country. We have Christian president. And the Chinese pastor said, I tell you there are Caesars or idols in your society just as much as in ours, and even in your churches. And there are false prophets telling you that idolatry is biblical and beasts coercing you. For example, your Caesar may not be a person, it may be an idea. He said, in our fellowship, we have a clever young man who lived with an American family for a year while studying. The couple was generous. But he noticed something about them. They were always exhausted. 
Both worked incredibly hard, though they had plenty of money. They had three cars, two homes, expensive country club memberships, and as far as he could tell, gave only a minimum to the Lord's work. They never asked him a single question about the Chinese church, and when he left, they gave him an envelope with $20 in it. And he told us, I felt so sorry for them. They thought they were free, but they were slaves. They were dropping from exhaustion because they had to live up to something called the American dream, but they never knew that the pursuit of that life had stolen their heart from Christ. The American pastor said, if what you say is true, then consumerism could be a more effective killer of faith than communism. And the Chinese pastor said, you're right. And this is what we're afraid of here in China. Consumerism clutters up life so much, listen to this, that we fail to see the world as it is, full of idols trying to steal our worship from God. There are Christians in China, in fact, there are more Christians in China today than there are in the United States. There's still a persecuted minority, but, minority, but just in terms of sheer physical numbers, there's more Christians there than there are here. And the one thing I hear over and over again from people serving in that part of the world is they're praying for us, for persecution, so that we would be faithful. From the perspective of earth, the city of Smyrna was rich. It wore the crown bestowed on it by the empire. From the perspective of heaven, it was poor because it put its faith and its hope in a power that cannot survive. From the perspective of earth, the church in Smyrna was poor. They had no money. They were punished for foolishly refusing to live by the greatness of the empire. But from the perspective of heaven, they were rich because they oriented their life towards a crown that never fades and can't be taken away. And so I ask you, from the perspective of heaven, are we rich or are we poor? Are we rich or are we poor? You need to decide because the king is coming. Think about that, and you need to pray. Take a moment.